so on the outline, as you see, the message that the kingdom of God is near has not been mentioned much since chapter 1. More focus has been on Jesus' identity as Messiah. And really, the big arc and big picture of the first eight chapters is that very subject. Who is this man, this wilderness man, who comes into the desert and is baptized by John? Who is he? And he'll ask directly that question in chapter 8. Who do, them, who do men say that I am? And, and Peter will respond. But within that arc of the first half of the book and the identity of the Messiah, there is also increasing insight into what it is he came to do. What is this kingdom of God? And so uh, it is not a secret society, as I say. It is, it is not something that is to be kept quiet. It is like a, a lampstand, a, a lamp. Uh, you don't put a bowl or a bed over it. You put it on its stand so it can be seen. It's not a secret society. It's meant to be revealed. But he's revealing it for those who will hear. He's using metaphors and uh, descriptions and parables. And he's calling forth a people, first of all, the 12 who will follow him. And now he's calling forth people, even down to today, who will listen to him. The first word out of his mouth in chapter 4 is, listen. And again we read, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 23. So these things are important. Last week we saw that the seed of the gospel is planted deeply within us, and the more deeply it goes, the more it explodes and works in us. Now we begin to see the description of the basics of the kingdom of God in this passage. And we must admit that it is simple and yet complex and fundamental and can only be described by a variety of expressions. We will see Jesus describing the kingdom of God in a whole host of ways because it's multifaceted and rich. This morning he uses the illustration, as old as Daniel, of a tree, a great tree. He says in verse 31, it is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground, yet when planted it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. This is a strong Old Testament image. In fact, the whole chapter 17 of Ezekiel is filled with the description of the, the church of God as of grand and growing vine, tree-like uh, substance that, that comes and brings harmony to the earth. In Daniel 4, we read these words. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it stood food, was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. And from it, every creature was fed. Daniel's vision of the future includes an expanding kingdom of God that will cover the whole earth. And we are told in Isaiah that there will be a new heavens and a new earth that will touch all of creation. Everyone will be affected. And there will be tremendous healing and, and flourishing as a result. So God's salvation, God's kingdom, is not just about making us happy. This is a major misconception. We know that Christ died for us, yes, but he didn't die just to make us happy. It's about healing all the alienations from God that, are, that have come as a result of the fall. 
that there would be no more injustice, disease, or death, and that the whole earth would be ultimately renewed. The vision of Christ's death and atonement is even greater than our sin and our need and our eternal life. That is the tremendous purpose of it in, to, in, a, in a limited extent, but his idea and his vision for it is even greater, for he wants to touch all the earth, all peoples, all nations. And therefore, the kingdom of God is meant to be not hidden, but to be expanded. So God's salvation and the sending of his Son is ultimately about him. It's ultimately not just a gift for us, but it is ultimately about him and not us. Yes, we enter a relationship with him because it will meet our needs and bring happiness, but we do it because it is his due. It's not our game, it's his. Know that the Lord is God, it says in Psalm 100. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of man. It's not the kingdom of us. It's not all about our flourishing. Indeed, God's people suffer. They are persecuted. Some are martyred. Not all goes well within this kingdom. But it wasn't about just our flourishing, our benefit, our prosperity. So if he is application, if he is the king of all, as the Bible says, you can't come to him negotiating whether he fits on your agenda or not, as if he were a consumer product. No, the entrance to the kingdom of heaven comes on our knees, comes with humility. It comes with submission. It comes with a surrender of control, which we never had anyway. And so, the kingdom of God, as he describes, is his work. He comes announcing it. He comes accomplishing it. And he will be the king on the throne who superintends and rules over it. It's his kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. So fundamental and foundational. But so self-centered are we that we think it's about us. We think, oh, he came to save me from my sins. Indeed, yes, and more, and more. For his purposes are expanding and are eternal and are worldwide, indeed, as big as the universe. Then we come to the central concept of the kingdom that describes how it operates and that helps us to see what is going on. We turn to verse 25, verse 24 and 25, and we read these words. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is one of the more cryptic statements that Jesus uses to explain this concept. And if we didn't have the rest of the New Testament and the rest of the gospel teaching of Christ, we might wonder. But when we place it into the context of what he said, it makes perfect sense. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. With what you give, you will receive. And so there's a certain participation in this kingdom. There's a certain aspect of involvement here that is being called forth. And it is not in the same way as other human kingdoms. Back in the late 40s, Stalin was taking over, of course, in Russia. And word of his atrocities was leaking out, and the Pope at that time spoke against him and said, these things ought not to be so, that Mr. Stalin and the government of the, of the Russian should, be, should cease what they're doing. And Stalin had an answer, of course. It was a question. How many divisions does the Pope have? And he let it go at that. He's not going to threaten me. If anything, I'll threaten him, says Stalin. He's got no power. He's got no position, military might, or anything else. He's just talking. I've got the divisions, the tanks, the missiles that I need to enforce my will. And so within us and within this world, there is this ongoing skepticism that these things might be true, that the things I'm about to, that Jesus is about to reveal to us are so. And there will always be the Stalins who say, I don't think so. Not in my world. These things don't work for me. I have a different set of standards and a different way of measuring things. But Jesus is insistent with the measure Verse 24, uh, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Again, putting it into the wider context, what is he saying? Givers have more and have more to give. Keepers will have less and less to hold on to. Giving Emptying yourself is the way to fullness. The more you give to someone else, the more you have. This is counterintuitive. It seems like bad math. If I give it away, now I have more? How can you subtract from me and give me a greater sum? That's what he's saying. And he means what he said. Givers will have more and will have more to give. Keepers will have less and have less to hold on to. Giving, giving, emptying myself, is the way to fullness. The the more you give to someone else, the more you have. Jesus said this in so many other ways. He said, the least shall be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He said, if you give up your life, you will gain it. And if you try to hold on to your life, you will lose it. He said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He's talking about an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that he came to usher in and that will continue to advance until the end of time. Ask yourself these questions. Who gets the most out of Bible study? The leader. The one who prepares. The one who gives more time to it. The one who extends themselves in the service of others who are not even there trusting that the day will come when the study will actually be held. The leader who prepares for the study 
gives of themselves, and then gives the truth away, typically is the one who most benefits from it. Now, the students gain too. But over and over and over again, people have said to me, I love to leave Bible studies. When it's my turn to lead, if it's a rotational system, I always get more out of it than they do. That's because this kingdom principle is in operation. You are giving, you are extending, you are serving, and therefore you are receiving. Again, bad math, but kingdom concepts. Who gets the most out of relationships? Those who move out to serve people are the most relationally rich. Those who will seek the welfare of others are the ones who gain from such seeking the most. The ones who are willing to ask about others and see what they need are the ones who then receive the most in return. Who gets the most out of money? The one who gives it away generously will not rot as they get more of it. I say rot. Ebenezer Scrooge, I mean, is there any other way to describe his life before the dreams? His life was a mess. Piles and piles and piles of money. But none for the poor. None for his employees. None for anybody but himself. And his life is sinking and rotting from the inside. We just went through Christmas. Think of Mr. Potter in A Wonderful Life. He's got all the money in town. Everything but the little building and loan is his. But he's a miserable guy. Unattractive in every way. And unwilling to part with a penny, it seems, for the benefit and welfare of others. The one who gives away, however, more open-handedly and generously, will not rot as they get more of it. Only by giving it away will you become truly rich. This is so true. We don't want to test it because we don't want to part with the money. But testing it just a little bit yields tremendous, tremendous response. Now, let me say that Jesus doesn't say that we do this in order to get. This is what some of the television preachers will tell you. Send me your money and you'll have more. Give me this and I'll guarantee that you'll have more. This is not giving to get. Very important distinction. Jesus did not die on the cross in order to get. It was an absolute, complete emptying of himself for our benefit. And now he receives the praises of his people forevermore. And this giving of time and Bible study effort and money is not in order to receive. If that's our motive, he who sees our hearts will object. And he will say, oh no, I'm not that kind of God. I'm not a slot machine. I'm not a a mathematical equation. You can't just plug me in and, and expect to get what you want by giving a certain amount. The way to largeness is through true humility and smallness. Remember, it's the smallness of the seed that releases tremendous power. And in this situation, the mustard seed, the smallest of all the seeds, is the one that has the most flourishing tree, which the birds of the air can come to. The way to largeness is through true humility and smallness. And we know the difference, and he knows the difference, if we're giving in order to get. This week I went to see my mother. 
and I'm not a very good son. It's been August, since August of 2014 that I went to see her. And she's very gracious with me. We talk a lot on the phone. She wasn't angry, but I owed her. But I didn't go to get something. I was enriched by her presence and by her responses to me and Gail as we visited. If I went for money, I was disappointed. If I went for some kind of pat on the head, no. It was just because I loved her and served her. But I received, and I felt enriched by the experience much more than I gave. So the central concept of the kingdom of God is that the world is turned upside down. The way to get higher is to go down and serve. In the upper room, at the Last Supper, what does Jesus do? They have their grand meal, and he speaks of the coming kingdom, really, literally, very soon. And then he takes off his outer garment. And he who would ascend to the glories of heaven in just a few hours takes off his outer garments and gets down on his knees and washes the disciples' feet. And Peter objects and he says, No, Peter, unless I wash your feet, you'll have no part of me. Unless you understand that the kingdom of God begins on your knees, begins in serving, begins in sacrifice. If you don't get that soon, then you'll never be a part of me. The way up is to go down. The way to influence is to serve. The way to be rich is to give it away. The way to be happy yourself is to seek the happiness of others. Profound. Profound. Absolutely life-changing. And yet, it's hard for us to get this. Because in our sin nature, and in our old manness, and in our influence, and in the fact that we are influenced by the world around us, our question is, how many divisions does the Pope have? Let me see the money. Let me see the security. Let me see the strength of this kingdom. The kingdom of God is invisible. It's as invisible as he is, unless you really look for it, seeking it, knocking it, and wanting to have it. So the way up, first of all, is to go down. The way to influence is to serve. The way to be rich is to give it away. And the way to be happy yourself is to seek the happiness of others. The least shall be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Give up your life and you will gain it. Seek to hold on to your life and you will lose it. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Aim at God and you will get God and joy. Aim at joy and you get neither. God will make you happy if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto you. But if you seek all these other things, you get nothing. Aim at righteousness and you will get blessedness. But aim at blessedness and you will get neither righteousness nor blessedness. This is how it works. Infallibly. In every instance, just as sure as gravity continues to be a force on this earth in every situation except the very weirdest of physical experiments, it is, this is true. You, there will always be a blessedness to those who seek righteousness. There will always be a fullness to those who seek serving. So this concept creates not only a new individual life, but a whole new community, a whole new way of relating to one another. 
of getting along and of serving and of listening and of seeking the welfare of others. So what do I do under application? Go down, get down, admit that you are a sinner, a moral failure, and you won't be able to look down on others or feel superior to them. This is the rich young ruler's problem. He's got an awful lot going for him. He's rich, let's settle that issue. He's young, and he's moral excellence. He's living a life that is uh, admirable. He's not a rich young scoundrel. He's a rich young ruler, a ruler who has been raised up because of his status and because of the admirable life in which he has lived. But he's not willing to admit that he's a sinner. He's not willing to say, I need help. He says one thing, I, what, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says one thing you lack. And we'll see this in a couple of weeks. He goes right to the point, you've got to be small. These things that you have that you're so proud of, you've got to give them up. You've got to let go of them. If you want to be in this kingdom, if you want to be a part of what I'm doing, then I'm going to reach into that part of your life which is the most vulnerable. Your love of money, your love of your status, your love of your praise, and I'm going to rip it out. And I'm going to replace it with something better, but it don't seem like it now. And so he says no, and he goes away sad. Then the power of seeking wealth and status and recognition will be broken in your life, and you'll be free. This is a kingdom that sets people free. It doesn't enslave them. It doesn't overtax them. It doesn't overburden them with regulations. It's a kingdom that sets people free. The power of seeking wealth and status and recognition and appreciation from other friends will be broken in your life. And the most important thing to you will be the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll say, I already have that. And so I don't need the approval of others. I don't have to seek it as if it was my lifeblood. I don't have to be in a situation where I am praised all the time or, or appreciated all the time. Actually, Christianity is not the opiate of the people, as Karl Marx said, but it is the smelling salts. It wakes you up. This is how things really work. If you're living your life as a Christian according to the ways of the world, you're in a very difficult spot because it, it doesn't work that way. That's not how things work in the kingdom of God. To follow the ways of the world, you're constantly sort of out of phase and out of step and wondering why you're so unhappy because the kingdom of God is entirely different. Entirely different. And questions such as how many divisions does the Pope have doesn't enter into it. It's how can I help you? Let me hold the door. Let me do for you. Let me give. Let me serve. Because I now have a valuable identity, not based on what I did or what I might do. My record isn't the thing that makes me. It's his record. My, my achievements and my merit are not what satisfy this world. It's what he did for me. And I now have integrity because I'm not acting to please myself. But we must say that the kingdom of heaven is the way of service and there is a cost. That cost is obedience 
And that cost is a connecting oneself to someone who has no divisions in this world. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus famously said, and indeed it is true. And so we are allied with a power that is invisible. And it, living in this world as we do, it's frustrating. We also have experiences of suffering and loss that we think ought not to happen to someone in the kingdom of God. We have these setbacks and these difficulties that are hard to swallow. After the sermon outline was finished this week, I came across a quote from Richard Bachman that gets at this point when he said, the Christian's weakness, the Christian's weakness is not at the point where he's failing, but it's the point where the deepest integration of his life and his message is possible. Remember we said last week that the kingdom of God grows in us as, the, as it goes more deeply within us, like a seed going more deeply into the soil. And when we get into those areas of our life that are the most tender, when we get into those things that are the closest to us, the things that are the most valuable, the things that we treasure the most, including non-material items like people and relationships and friends and family, it's at that point when we lose those things, where we feel that we're failing, it's at that point where the deepest integration of life and message is possible. Where we can reach out and say, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. He who, takes, who, who follows me must take up his cross daily and follow me. It's at this point where it makes the most sense. It's at the point of loss and difficulty where the Lord becomes the most present and real. For he does go with us into the valley of the shadow of death. He does go with us into the greatest needs of our life. He's there. It's at that point that we see the kingdom of God firmly established. Otherwise, we struggle. We, we live in a world in which we sometimes believe and sometimes don't. Sometimes trust and sometimes don't. Sometimes trust more, sometimes trust less. And we wonder. But the kingdom of God is so wonderful that it, it, it deeply grows within us to the reaching the point of our greatest need. So therefore, I have integrity. Because I'm not acting to please others or myself, I'm see simply seeking to follow the Lord. How in the world do we apply these things then? Having explained the general concept and principle of the kingdom of God, how do I go deeper? How do I allow the seed of the gospel to, dig, to root itself more deeply into my life? What steps can I take to encourage the kingdom of God to grow within me? Two things. Shock and awe. First of all, the shock. When you look at your life honestly, you will be shocked, as I am, always, at the depth of my sin. In Lent this year, during the Lenten season, Kevin and I are going to divide up the seven deadly sins, and we're going to take one Sunday on each one of the deadly sins. And I'm working on pride. And the more I work on that, I tell you, I just cannot get to the bottom of it. 
Everywhere I look, I see my pride. I'm even proud of how humble I've become. <laughs> and I'll tell you about it. Pride just hangs on us. It goes way deeply down. And for, uh, for the seed of the gospel to have root, for the spirit of God to work within us, it has to go down deeply too. And the pathway for that is to, be, is to open up the, the, the passageways and say, I'm shocked at how much I need the Lord Jesus Christ. I may be civilized, and I may be acceptable culturally and in a mannerly way, but deep within my heart there is a self-centeredness that is ugly, shocking. It goes way, way down. The first time I do something right, I congratulate myself. I, I take credit for it, even if I didn't do it. It goes way down. We'll talk about that in that Sunday, but the pathway to understanding the kingdom of God is to be shocked by how much you need it. To be truly arrested by the fact that your sin goes all the way down. And it's not just in our actions or in our words. The sin goes to our heart and to the very heart and deepest part of us. And it's shocking to see. If you can be shocked like that, that's the beginning. Peter says, oh, we'll build you a kingdom. We'll, we'll, in fact, we'll build you a temple right here on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. Or, Let me, we'll, we will die for you, he says. He doesn't have the first idea at that point how much he needs a Savior and how the kingdom of God works. So the first thing is to be shocked at my sin depth. And the second thing is to be awed by the wonder of his grace. Because as deep as our sin has gone and our pride has nearly strangled us, so much greater is his grace and mercy. And you know, we don't often appreciate it like we should. We sing of it. We know it's there. But somehow we restrict it. We don't let it flow. Let it be expressed in our life and to, to relax and to rejoice in the fact that you are loved more love than you will ever deserve or can ever truly comprehend. So how in the world do we embrace this kingdom of God through humility and trust? Humbled by our sin, we come to him and embrace him. And trusting him, we thank him for his marvelous grace. So the kingdom of God is truly unique and you who have trusted in Christ as your Savior, you're in it. Now apply it. Live in it. Understand its principles. It's not about how many divisions you have. My boys and I used to watch the A-Team on television. Kind of a silly show, really. Military. Hannibal Smith, the colonel, would say, I love it when a plan comes together. When I get the Army, the Navy, the Marines all together and beat the bad guys, I love it when a plan comes together. God is working a plan in your life. And it will be at that point, perhaps, when the, it seems that the plan is not coming together. 
that you will find him to be there and to sustain to sustain you, to strengthen you, to help you. It will be at that moment when it seems like the plan is not coming together, as Richard Bachman says. Weakness is not the point where we are failing, but it's the point where the deepest integration of life and message is possible. It's at that moment that Christianity and the kingdom of God explodes within us, when the plans are not coming together, when the reality of the loss, the last being first and the least being greatest, comes to bear. So rejoice. He's opened our eyes to something that the world cannot see. If you haven't taken this, Savior, today's the day. If you haven't received this insight, and this, what I've been talking about hasn't been making sense, but it's beginning to, then love him back and say, yes, I'm shocked at how great is my sin, but I'm awed by how much you love me and how you've withstood with me all these years to this point in my life. You've been good to me. And rejoice. Let us pray. Bring the kingdom to bear, O oh Lord, in our lives. Make it, make it shine. Make it, don't let us hide it under a lampstand. And don't let us be discouraged by its smallness. And help us to be generous in a stingy world. Help us to be strong when we are weak. And let us use our weakness to find your strength. This day we thank you that the kingdom of God is not like the rest of the kingdoms of this world which rise and fall and always smash to pieces in the end. Instead, O oh Lord, you have given us a new kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. And in it we take citizenship and we rejoice through Christ our Lord. Amen.